Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Welcome to the miracle this morning. We hadn't thought about that a little bit. I mean, as Brother Wayne was praying, I was thinking of, if you really know, as I hope all of you do, what we are by nature, it's a miracle that we're here today. That God would raise up a people, give them of His Spirit, and tell them that, you know, on a Sunday morning you're going to come together, you're actually going to be able to say something good about me, or worship me, or have anything good at all going on in your life. God is good, is He not? And you're, you're sitting in the middle of a miracle. So, as we proceed in this service, I pray you be mindful of that. I've grown closer to Elder Harvey over the time since I've become the pastor of Harmony Church. I've found more occasions to discuss things with him and kind of draw upon his previous experience. And I really appreciate how you all welcome us into this church. Brother Gary's been very hospitable to me, and you all have been always made us feel like a family when we show up here. It's very much appreciated. I've come to appreciate Brother Gary's candor. Candor, honesty, is hard to come by. Now, I'll qualify that a little bit. It's hard to come by without malevolence. You get out on social media and you may find people having a lot of candor and saying a lot of what they think, sitting behind a keyboard with some level of anonymity and maybe social consequences removed. They may have more candor in that setting and it may bring out more malevolence in the way they give you that. They they may not have the best of intentions a lot of times. Sometimes it's more like, I want to rub your nose in it a little bit about this, that, or the other thing. So you do find candor maybe along the lines of social media, but it's hard to find it without malevolence. And that's the thing that I've grown to value about Brother Gary is that he's able to have candor and be honest with me about his opinions of things without malevolence. It's a benevolent candor, right? I bet if you look in your own life, you can see instances where people have said things to you that maybe were true and you thought, but they didn't really have the best of intent when they said it. And other times where you said that person said something to me and it was really profitable to me and that was their intent. So there's a benevolent candor and there's a malevolent candor. And Brother Gary has been a source of benevolent candor to me. In fact, I'd say Brother Gary's got so much candor, I may have underestimated his value. Uh, Brother Gary can bring the candor in a way that will open your eyes a little bit. And that, that's good. That's good, provided it is benevolent candor, right? And not just trying to skin your hide for the sheer fleshly pleasure of wearing you out about something. So you all are blessed to have a pastor that has that degree of candor. And I could say this to the shame of maybe public Christian ministry in many respects. I have not found ministers to exhibit benevolent candor the way I'd like for them to. My experience has been that ministers are often some of the most shifty, I'm going to play my cards very carefully sort of people. And that's problematic. It means they may hold back some things that you need to hear because they're thinking about how this is going to affect me. I mean, there's a lot of elements to this. 
I mean, you see it played out in, in things like, well, this person is the biggest contributor to the church. Maybe you ought to think twice before you correct this person because he's doing something like that. See, there's, there's a lack of candor there, is there not? And ministers can get caught up in that. And I am so thankful to Brother Gary because he is a, just a very honest person who will tell you what he thinks. And a lot of times it may not be necessarily what you want to hear. And that is to be valued. It's very important in Christian ministry. I've had this discussion with him and I've often said, you know, iron sharpens iron. You hear Christians say that. Maybe they're disagreeing about some theological point. We're in a different group of Christians than other people, and they believe things differently. And maybe they'll say something that disagrees, and they'll say, well, iron sharpens iron. But they never really get into the matter. I've always said this. It's true that iron sharpens iron, but not without the application of force. Now, if I show you my primitive Baptist sword and somebody over here shows me the Methodist sword and we've both shown each other our swords and there's never any application of force between those two pieces of metal, there's no sharpening of the iron that goes on. If you've ever sharpened a knife, you have applied force to the metal. It has to contact something and whittle away at some of that surface material. You have to apply force to get that blade sharpened. And if all we ever do in Christian ministry is just show each other the swords and we never actually do some uh, battling one another, there's no iron hitting against iron, there's no force applied, neither one of us are ever going to knock the burrs off that blade, are we? So you've got to have an application of force, and the force that has to be applied for that candor and that iron sharpening iron to be profitable has to be resting on the truth. Right? I mean, it's possible to convince someone of something that you believe that is actually wrong. You could use human reason to kind of talk them into belief. Well, that sounds reasonable to me. So it's very important to have honesty in Christian ministry. It's very important to, to be sitting upon the truth. One of the truths that I think is under assault today is the notion of identity. There are a lot of people talking about identity today. I would ask this question, how would you describe yourself? Someone came up to you, tell me how you describe yourself. Well, there's any number of ways. How would you identify yourself? Honestly, you hear things brought up in the realm of identity that, that as little as five years ago would have been thought of as absolutely preposterous. And now, to suggest that they're preposterous will have you vilified in broad society today. Five years ago, it would have been preposterous, although there were some rumblings around the edges, and now it is right in the heart and center of things going on. I have a friend that has a child in public schools in a school system north of Little Rock, and he said they are now actively debating in their school system whether or not they need to put litter boxes in the restrooms because they have students who identify as furries. I mean, it's a legitimate conversation that is going on in school. It's shocking, I know. But it brings me back to this question. This is kind of what I've been thinking about. How would you describe yourself? Now, if I were to describe myself, there might be several things that I might, that come to mind. I might say, I'm a son. That's not difficult to sustain. I've got parents. I've got a birth certificate. I don't think they're lying to me. 
I know people who have known me all my life and were there the day I was born. I'm a son. Anyone who's a man is a son of somebody. You might question whether or not those are my parents, but I think I've got proof of that as well. I am a husband. I brought my wife today as uh, I'll present her as Exhibit A. Uh, I am a husband. I'm a father. My son is in tow as well. So these are things that I could present myself, I could identify as, and I'm not just making that up. I have some evidence that sustains this identity. I'm a man. Well, that one might be questioned by some people on a variety of different levels, but uh, there's a lot of people today who would say, what you see of me and what you see of the evidence of me being a son and a husband and having a son, being a father, that's not really sufficient to sustain the idea that you're a man. (laughs) Honestly. But I'm going to throw that one out there. But then you fade into this new realm of starting to say things like, well, I'm a furry. I think I'm a furry creature. And I need a litter box in the restroom. Whatever might be said of the relative merits of those assertions about who I am or what someone might say about who they are, it's clear to see you can say anything, right? I mean, I can say I'm Superman, right? I can say I'm anything. But whatever you say, it could fall into the category of something that's right. It could be something that's just totally wrong, evidently wrong. It could be a state that you have been in from the beginning. I've always been a son, but I have not always been a husband. I'm changing over time. I became a husband. I became a father. Those things are accurate, but they don't describe me throughout the entirety of my life. And they do range from the obvious to the preposterous, do they not? One of the early things that any Christian needs to lay hold of is the idea that God does not lie. His Word is the truth, and we accept that on its face, and that is how we're able to have access to the Word of God and receive the truths that are in there. We have to approach the Bible with this a priori understanding that this is God's Word and God doesn't lie to us, right? Men can come up with any number of ways that they might describe themselves, and they may be wrong about it, they may be right about it, but how does God describe Himself? What does God have to say about Himself? I submit that much of what separates what we believe from many other Christian denominations is the degree to which you are willing to accept God's testimony about Himself. What has He said about Himself? He can't lie. He cannot lie. So what has He said about Himself? And do we believe that? Now, a man may say something preposterous about what he is, but we don't have the same presupposition when we hear a man speak. We don't say, well, it's impossible that this person could be lying. We don't think that. Life has borne out. Men can lie, they can be deceived, they can tell you the wrong thing. They can... There's any number of ways that men may be incorrect about how they present themselves, but that's not the case with God. So in many respects, the Christian religion and being rooted in proper doctrine has to do with, do you accept the testimony of the God that cannot lie about who He is? What has God said about who He is? I'm starting in Exodus chapter 3, and you all know this well. 
It's an enigmatic statement. This is the burning bush, right? So Moses encounters the burning bush, and he has a conversation with God here. In about verse 6, God tells him, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. God is making a declaration of who He is. He's tying Himself and His identity to, I'm the same God that these men before me knew. You follow me? These patriarchs knew. Not some new God. This is all a continuity that goes all the way back to these patriarchs. Scroll down a little bit. Verse 11, And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, he's asking a little bit of the who am I part of it. I'm not sure I have the right qualifications here, right, to be this person that's going to do the thing God is asking of him. And God later on, back down in verse 14, makes a statement that's pretty enigmatic. It's very deep. There's probably a lot of preaching that could go into this. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. This is how God is describing himself. How would God identify himself, right? He's seen this thing transpiring in front of him in a burning bush, and he's kind of inquiring about, who are you? (laughs) And the first thing God says is, I am that I am. That seems pretty enigmatic to me. I mean, it's a strange statement. I am that I am. And I think wrapped up in this is the notion of the eternal being of God. I've always been here. None of us can say, I am that I am right? I mentioned to you before that I'm a son. That's not controversial. Maybe it will be in the future, the way things are going, but that's easy to sustain. But it proves that I had a beginning, right? In terms of my natural life, I haven't always been here. 1967 is when it all started. So I can't say I am that I am. I am this self-existent, eternal being. I've always been here. I can't say that about myself. And this is Really, ultimately, one of the most unique attributes of God, when you think about it. What attributes separate God from man? Well, there's a lot that you could lay out there. But this idea of being eternally existent, I've just always been here. I am, in that sort of sense. That's unique to God alone. And then he tells him, it always kind of struck me as funny. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I would think if I were Moses, I'd probably think, well, that's probably going to raise as many questions as it's going to answer. You know, if you go to the people of Israel and say, well, I am sent me. They're going to be like, what is that? What? That sounds pretty strange to me. But I think if you think about it a little bit, step back and say, how do those words strike me at face value? And then start to think, well, what does that mean? I am is a statement of being. And when you say I am in that sense, you're saying I have always been. I'm the God that has always been here. The Lord himself made some comments along these lines as well. He made several I am statements, and I want to look at a few of them today. The first one is in John chapter 6. Now remember, this is the God that cannot lie, right? Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. I'm in chapter 6, starting about verse 33. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. 
Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the bread of life? He's the God that cannot lie, and this is what he's saying about himself. Okay? I submit to you that if you are a sincere Christian, you have nowhere to go with this verse other than to say, I believe Jesus Christ is the bread of life. You may not know what that means. You may need to spend some time studying what the Lord intended by that phrase. But you've got to affirm this. He's the God that cannot lie. And this is what he's saying of himself. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Well, the first thing I'd want to point out, the main thing I'd want to point out in this respect, Christianity has gone off the rails with verses like this. And they say, oh, he's the bread of life. Oh, he's talking about communion. Oh, so you've got to take communion to get eternal life. You see where that goes very quickly? There's religious orders, Christian religious orders, who make that statement. Jesus said He's the bread of life. We're the ones serving communion. We've got the bread. You better come take the bread of life, because if you don't, you're not going to have eternal life. Well, that is not what the Lord intended. If He's the bread of life, is it a spiritual bread or is it a natural bread? That's the first question. It's a spiritual matter that He's discussing here, Right? Now, what manner of man can be a partaker of spiritual bread? A living, spiritually living man or a spiritually dead man? You've got to have spiritual life to be able to partake of spiritual bread, do you not? To have any sort of desire, to a hunger and thirst for righteousness is one of the beatified states, is it not? That is the state of someone who is born of the Spirit of God. This is talking about the Lord's ability to provide spiritual sustenance to you in this lifetime. And it is speaking to those who have spiritual life. The spiritually dead have no interest in spiritual sustenance. They have no spiritual dimension to their life whatsoever. They may say that they do, but they don't. The Lord here is teaching something about how He's going to supply what we need. He provides the spiritual sustenance we need. We can rely on that. We should believe it, should we not? This is the Lord who cannot lie, and He's telling us something about Himself. We need to accept that truth. Let's keep going. Turn over page chapter 8, I believe it is. And about verse 12, here's another I am. This is the God who cannot lie. He's going to tell us how He identifies. Pretty important. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Here again, you've got a follower, someone who has an interest in following the Lord. That is a spiritual activity. He is not suggesting you need to turn the light on, the light of God on in your life so that you can have eternal life. He is making a suggestion about the beneficiaries of light, which are those who have spiritual life already. Right? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He has no spiritual sight whatsoever. If you take a blind man, put him in a room, you can turn the lights on or off. It doesn't make any difference, right? He doesn't have the capacity of sight. But someone who can see can appreciate the benefits of light in their life. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is an hard saying maybe, but I want you to hear it. A lot of the trouble that God's people have in their lives is not externally imposed upon them. It is because they walk in darkness rather than in light. 
Being a Christian disciple does not absolutely guarantee that you are going to walk in the light. You can turn your life around and go out of here and walk in a way that is totally contrary to the precepts of Christianity. And when you do that, even as a regenerate child of God, you're not unborn again as a result of that. You're just living in sin and you're going to bring the consequences into your life. Some of you maybe have gotten up in the middle of the night. I've done this before, and I'm in a hurry. I'm, maybe I'm trying to go to the restroom or whatever. And you think, well, I kind of know where the door is. I'm not going to turn the light on. Or maybe, you know, Catherine's still asleep. I don't want to wake her up, have to turn the light on. And then you stub your toe on the end of the bed or something, and it's just the most painful thing you've ever done. You thought you knew. Well, I thought I knew where I've been walking around this bedroom all my life. Surely I know where the legs of the bed are. You thought you knew, but you didn't know. And you're stumbling around in darkness. Now, don't destroy your marriage by turning on a light in the middle of the night (laughs) to try to get to the restroom. That's not my point. My point is you would have benefited from the light that was available to you, would you not? In that natural example. And God's people are stubbing their toes all over the place simply because the light of the world is there and available to them, and they say, I think I got this. I think I know where everything is. I've been walking around this world long enough. I know where the places are I could stub my toe. I know where the cat normally sleeps. I'm not going to trip over a cat. It's just foolishness. The Lord has said, I'm the light of the world. And the closer your life follows Behind Christ as a disciple, the more you're going to see what's around you and the less you're going to be stubbing your toes. And, you know, stubbing your toe is a horrible thing. I've done it so bad that it's just like, I think I'm going to die. It's just so painful. You kind of chuckle at that, but the sort of things that you stub your toe on in life when you're not following the Lord Jesus Christ, they're big life destroying things that are out there. And when you think... I got this. I can handle it. I don't really need that light. I know where everything is. I'm good. That's when many of God's people fall into all sorts of life-destroying problems. They just don't want to believe that Jesus Christ is the light. I guess they kind of think, I generate my own light. Right? Maybe I'm not the light of the world that Jesus Christ is, but I got a little flashlight or something. I'm able to see kind of what's around me. No, we don't. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And if you're stumbling around, stubbing your toes, having all kinds of issues, it's important to step back and say, what is the cause of this? In computer systems, you do what's called a root cause analysis, RCA. If something goes wrong, client's upset about it, you've got to do an RCA. That means you've got to find out what the root cause of this problem was and figure it out. And then you write a policy so that that won't happen again. And you show the client and you say, we've got this figured out. It's not going to happen next month because we figured this out. The root cause analysis in the lives of many of God's people is that I just don't avail myself of the light of Christ in my life. I don't come to church enough. I don't get involved enough. I don't serve in the kingdom enough. I don't do any of those things. You know why? Because I think I got plenty of light around me and I got this. I can handle it. I don't have to Regard Jesus Christ as the light of the world. I just don't believe it. Well, that's how he identifies. In a world that is so wound up about how everybody's going to identify, when we know full well that men can lie about how they identify, and they can say things that are preposterous about how they identify, here's the Lord who cannot lie, identifying himself as the light of the world. Do we believe it? 
We ought to believe it. Let's look at another example. John chapter 10, turn a couple pages over. Verse 6, This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which He spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Here's another one that gets twisted. Now, if you're the door of the sheepfold, are you dealing with dead sheep or are you dealing with live sheep? Are you dealing with existing sheep or are you trying to make sheep? You walk through this door, you're going to turn into a sheep. It's a magical door. Walked up as a goat, passed through, you became a sheep. This is again speaking of the Lord's work in all this, not speaking of making sheep. The point here being, anyone who got into my fold got in because I'm the one manning the door. Okay? And by the way, you were a sheep when I let you through the door. You see that? You're a sheep by election. You're a child of God by election. These things are before the foundation of the world. In time, the Lord is not in a sheep manufacturing business. Follow me? This speaks to God's sovereign providence over the matters of managing the sheep and who is in the fold. This is how He identifies It's who He will let in, not who free will lets in. You see me? You see what I'm saying there? Free will religion would have a problem with this idea that Jesus is the door. They're going to say the door is basically what a man decides about whether he's in or out. That's the notion that's commonly promoted in this. But again, these are sheep already. The Lord is managing the flock here. He's talking about His sovereign providence in how He does this. He speaks about this a little further. Actually, I need to back up a little bit. If you start at the beginning of that chapter, He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. He's got a flock and he knows them by name. This is one of the strongest affirmations of the doctrine of election in the Bible. It's not a free-for-all where God says, I'm just setting it up and whoever comes and rings the bell, I'll just be as surprised as you are about who's going to get into heaven because I'm just watching it play out. He knows them by name. Now, This goes directly into the statements he makes about being a good shepherd. He is the door. Do we believe that? That's his testimony. You can't lie about it. He's going to go on to say in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now there's a lot in that. Are you going to believe that? This is how he identifies. Not everyone's a sheep. If you're a sheep, you're one of God's elect. You're a chosen child of God. The goats are not. There's no switching between sheep and goat in this world. God has a flock of sheep that were chosen before the foundation of the world. 
He is a good shepherd. He's not a pretty good shepherd. And I'm going to submit to you that the majority of Christendom preaches a pretty good shepherd. I'll take it stronger than that. Many of them preach a lousy shepherd. Because what they believe is that God is trying to save everyone. And at the end of time, He shows up with some ragtag flock that happened to wander into His pen, and here they are. I realized when I became the pastor at Harmony Church that there is something that's really important in pastoring, and I hadn't thought about it before. It's math. We had problems with our church role. We've gotten sloppy. We had some difficulty ascertaining who were all the members of the church. Some of them have faded off into oblivion. We weren't even sure where they were. And I realized something. That the pastorate is considered to be an under-shepherd. So there's a shepherding responsibility here. And you cannot be a shepherd without math. That's like one of the fundamental things. It's like saying, I'm an accountant, but I don't use math. Well, you're not going to be a very good accountant. You can't be a shepherd without math. You have to know how many are in the flock. And then you have to be ascertaining how many of these people are actually here. And those that have gone off, the Bible talks about 99 and then one that's wandered off. Well, that'd be something to celebrate in my experience. I'm telling you right now. Am I right? We have 50 members of Harmony Church. And I realized pretty early on, I've got to know how many people I have. I need to be counting the flock. I need to be understanding. These people are not here. How can I be a shepherd and not know? Well, I don't know, how many, I don't know if they're all here or not. I just kind of feel about... It became very important to me to understand this because as I look at the good shepherd, this is my example. The Lord has set the ultimate shepherding example. And He says later on in this chapter... I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. See, the number he's got in his flock is the number that are being delivered unto glory. That's just all there is to it. There's not going to be the loss of one, and there's not going to be the increase of one. Because he is a good shepherd. And anything other than that is not good shepherding. Because shepherding implicit in that metaphor, if you will, is the idea that I have a fold and I have to deliver them from point A to point B. And that's what my core job is. It can't be freewheeling out there. I got to know the flock. I got to know how many they are. I got to get them from point A to point B. He knows them by name, right? There is an intimacy and a relationship there that is incredibly important. And if you don't know the count it's hard to know well, who's wandered off. Now, I don't know a lot about shepherding. I, I've done some preaching on shepherding. I've never owned any sheep. I've heard a lot of preaching done by people who never owned a sheep in their life. And they can tell you, well, sheep are, you know, they're dumb. And they, we all talk like we've been real shepherds in real life. And, I, you know, you can learn. You can read things about it. And I'm sure those things that have been preached are true. I've preached them myself a few times. But I can honestly say I, I haven't owned any sheep. I've never been 
a shepherd in the formal sense, right? In that literal sense. But I have owned a beagle. And I've learned something about owning that beagle, which is that he's pretty headstrong. And like sheep who are prone to wander, and you've got to go out and find him, if I don't keep a pretty close eye on that dog, he's all nose. And he'll catch a smell of something and he's just gone. And he'll just run off. Well, I've got to go get him. And it's happened in our neighborhood a few times. He's, he's gotten out a few times and then we're driving through the neighborhoods and stuff like that. I'm a beagle shepherd, I guess you would say. I've got a flock of one, and uh, thus far, so far as I know, he's, he's at the house right now, unless he's gotten out somehow. But I do know this, he's prone to wander, and when he goes out, you've got to go find him. You've got to go look for him. Now, if I'm going to do that for a beagle, am I going to have to do that for the sheep in the Lord's flock? And if I'm not doing that, am I fulfilling the shepherding role in that? Are these people part of the flock? So, these are things the Lord says about Himself. And good shepherd is one of those phrases that people mention all the time. Well, He's a good shepherd. But do we really think about it? You're a good shepherd. You know how many you got. And you're making sure what's going on with all of them. And the Lord's going to deliver every single one of them. And if He doesn't, He's not a good shepherd. That's why I say much of Christendom preaches a pretty good shepherd. Well, I showed up with 90% of them. Well, in school you'd say, well, that's good enough to get an A. It's not good enough to be a good shepherd, though. You follow me? I guarantee if the shepherd of your bank account, wherever you bank, had that kind of perspective on shepherding your money, you'd be finding another place to put your money. Well, I got 90. You gave me $100. I got 90 of it. (laughs) We're the good bank. (laughs) Right? You apply this standard in other areas. I've, I've said, you know, what about child care? Lots of people have to put their kids in daycare, two-income families. They've got a child they put in daycare. You come back at the end of the day, and they're like, well, we got most of them. We don't know where yours went, but we got most of them. We're the Good Shepherd Daycare. It's in the name. You'd be like, this is outrageous. This is a terrible, terrible organization here. Terrible bank, terrible daycare. But many people preach that Jesus. And we'd be horrified if you said, that's a terrible Jesus. But I submit to you, it's a much greater offense if the one who's calling himself the Savior, the one who said he's going to deliver all the sheep, if he shows up with less than what he's supposed to have, that is a much greater offense than when you went to the bank and they said, we got $90 instead of 100 Do we believe what he said about himself? That's how he identifies. He's a good shepherd. We're going to believe that one? He says he gives his life for the sheep. This is another problematic statement. Much of Christendom just cannot accept this. He gives his life for the sheep. They try to deal with it by saying, well, that means when you accept Jesus, that's when you become a sheep. And then once you become a sheep, he gives his life for those who accepted him. That's the, that's the typical explanation. But look in verse 26. This is a complete undoing of that. But ye believe not. He's talking to people who do not believe here. Ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. You see what is said there? He doesn't say, you are not a sheep because you believe not. You follow that? 
That's what most of Christianity says. If they would believe, they would become a sheep. Look, I submit to you that if that's the way it works, there's no reason to balk at the idea that someone says, I'm a kitty cat. You follow me? All they're doing is saying, I believe that I'm a kitty cat, and now I've become one. People who would not accept that in the public discourse, in how their schools are being run, and how these conversations are going on in their society, they go to church on Sunday morning and they say, well, that's exactly how it works in God's kingdom. It's called existentialism. The world is what you believe it to be. Right? What he teaches here is that the fact that they are not sheep is the reason they don't believe. He doesn't teach that believing will turn you into a sheep. And verse 26 makes that point in no uncertain terms. And that's very offensive to much of the world. Some people say, well, that's going to leave some people out. It's not going to leave any of God's people out. Because the only people who ever have any inclination to love God and serve Him want to believe, those are people who've already been touched by His Spirit. They may not ever come to fully understand limited atonement, right? They're beneficiaries nevertheless because He's a good shepherd. See what I'm saying? He's delivering all His sheep, and He has to do that. There's a few others here. I'm probably not going to get to all of them. Chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is one that's been under assault. Verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Much of Christianity has stepped away from the idea that Jesus Christ literally rose from the grave. And yet Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he makes this point. This is in the context of the death of Lazarus. He's making this point. I have control over life and death, and I'm fixing to bring Lazarus out of the grave. And he did that. That's how he identifies. So Christian sects who are out there saying, we don't really believe the literal resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. What they're saying is, we just don't believe you're the resurrection and the life. We believe you're a moldering in the grave. Well, I got news for you. That's not how he identifies. He is the resurrection and the life. This God that cannot lie. And by the way, if you don't believe that, you don't have any hope in Christ anyway. If He really has no power over life and death, if He didn't come out of the grave, this is all a colossal waste of time. That's how He identifies. You going to believe how He identifies? Well, we certainly respect how lots of other people identify, who we know lie about how they identify. And some of the ways they identify are absolutely preposterous. And our society is saying, you've got to accept how they identify. This is the Lord of glory who doesn't lie. And this is how He identifies. Chapter 14, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, we've already hit that the Lord is the truth. We accept up front. It's a presupposition that the Lord's telling us the truth. He cannot lie. I won't belabor that point here. In John chapter 15, He says this, I am the true vine, and My Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth, that it may bring forth more fruit. This is talking about fruit bearing. Okay? This is not talking about how you get eternal life. Follow me? He says it plainly here. Beareth not fruit, beareth fruit, beareth more fruit. The context here is plainly. What is the produce of your life? And for it to be spiritual and profitable to God's people, it's got to be connected to the vine. 
Jesus Christ is the vine. He's the source of your nutrients in a spiritual sense. It's not, I got to somehow, I'm some lone apple out here. I got to figure out how to connect myself to the vine. No, it's that if you want to produce fruit in your life, you got to recognize that I do that by abiding in Christ. I stay close to the Lord. I walk spiritually rather than carnally. Many people said, well, this is just one of those verses where they say, you know, the Lord goes through and he looks, well, you're not bearing any fruit. I'm going to cut you off. You're going to be thrown in the pile over here and burn. This is talked about later. Those people are going to hell. There's some burning going on here. They're going straight to hell. He's not talking about how you get eternal life because you don't do anything to get eternal life anyway. With men, it is impossible. It's not with men. It is based on how good you do with fruit bearing. It's impossible. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about fruit bearing. And let me prove it to you. Verse 3, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus Christ preached the gospel of how he's going to cleanse his people, what he's going to do for them. He's going to build many mansions for them in the previous chapters. He's he's preached all this and he's, he's talking to these people. He says, now ye are clean. How in the world are you ever going to interpret this in such a way that Jesus is saying, well, but you know what? God may come in here and just cut you off and you're going to be burned in hell. That makes literally no sense. He's talking about the profitability of your life within the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. You want to be profitable in the kingdom of God? Abide in Christ. That means you're going to have to lay down some carnal stuff that otherwise take up a lot of your time. Some people deal with spiritual melees and they're cold and they wonder about such things. Well, a lot of times we are responsible for the distance we place between ourselves and the Lord. And... Abiding in Christ is one of the ways that you take care of that. So as we close, I'm going to look at Isaiah chapter 45. This came to mind. How does God identify Himself? Well, we're saying a lot about how we've got to respect what any man says about how they identify. When we know full well that men are, some of them are crazy. Some of them are liars. Some of them don't have good sense. There's any number of ways that how a person identifies himself might be totally preposterous. And we insist that people respect that. But here's God that cannot lie. And are we going to accept the testimony of how He identifies? Isaiah 45, verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. Two references going on here. The first is in this context speaking of the national election of Israel, but in a spiritual sense speaking of God's spiritual elect, the spiritual Israel of God. The Bible doesn't shy away from election. And we shouldn't either. That's his testimony. He's an electing God. Are we going to accept that that's how he identifies? I have even called thee by thy name. Well, he knows some people's names here, doesn't he? Again, it's not freewheeling. He knows his people. It's implicit in the idea of a good shepherd. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. It wasn't because you came to say, well, I became spiritually enlightened. I started studying all this stuff, and suddenly I became enlightened enough to know God. We did this when you didn't know Him. Okay? It ain't got nothing to do with what you know. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. That's how He identifies. The one true and living God. He's told us all these things about Himself. Let me go back through what we just went through. 
He's the giver of our sustenance. That comes from God. That's the bread of life and the vine. This is how we receive spiritual sustenance. And are we availing ourselves of that? Do we believe Him when He says that? He said, well, I'm spiritually cold today. Are you attached to the vine? Are you availing yourself of the bread of life? Are you filling your life with a whole bunch of carnal distractions that don't feed your soul? They make you cold, miserable. You think they make you happy, but they don't. It's so much simpler than we make it out to be. He's the giver of light. Are you receiving that light? Do you stay in the light or you wander out into the darkness? That's what we're prone to do. He identifies himself as the light of the world, but do we believe that? Do we receive that testimony? He's managing the door. Do we believe that? Do we believe someone's free will is opening and closing the door? He's a good shepherd. Do we believe that as well? He provides a hope of resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. I mean, honestly, if we don't accept that testimony of how he identifies, we don't have anything to talk about. He's just a sage, a philosopher. He's just like anybody else. A lot of stories written about him. Kind of amazing, I guess, that he had such an impact on the world. But if he's moldering in the grave, he's not the resurrection and the life. And that's how he identifies himself. So that's how God's people need to identify him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Do we believe that? How do you identify the Lord? I would say, if we don't identify the Lord in the way He identifies the Lord, we're not worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons, preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.